2: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN, and we had a really fun conversation just kind of looking at what we're looking forward to in the season. So some big picture stuff for teams, for players, for league-wide trends, but also the questions that we want answered, what we're really going to be looking for in the first couple weeks of the season, teams that we can't quite figure out, which surprisingly, maybe, are the same teams for the most part so we go through all that fun wide-ranging conversation brought to you by BetOnline.ag. use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus cbs sports hq and then i'll talk a little bit about the uh, there's a podcast one survey you can do that can really help us out but a great conversation with kevin pelton hope you enjoy it thank you so much for coming on
1: thanks as always for having me
2: i don't know if you feel the same way that i do that this is kind of a uh, an interesting part of the calendar because the you, you're getting a little bit of the, the fun stuff because there is actual basketball now. I mean, you and I were talking during Nuggets Blazers on Tuesday night, but it still does feel like with the real thing so close, it's still a little bit agonizing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought there was a funny exchange between uh, our buddy Seth Partnow and I on Twitter during that game uh, Tuesday night, which he was like, I can't wait till we get to the regular season so that some of these teams can, you know, have reality hit them in the face. And I was like, oh, man, I love preseason because of the fact that, you know, the stakes are so low. People aren't wound up in the same way that they are during the regular season. I, when I covered a team back during the Sonics days or, or the WNBA Seattle Storm it was always my favorite part of the year was the pre preseason then the game started it wasn't nearly as much fun is is a league wide analyst it's probably not quite the same especially now that you know players don't necessarily play that much in the preseason like I'm going up to see the Clippers next week in Vancouver and you know who knows if Kawhi Leonard will actually be part of that which is you know the real fun is starting to kind of especially this year with so much turnover unlock the mysteries and start to figure out how everything is going to fit together this year.
2: Right, and you and I are both very into the exploration and discovery phase of the season, which is the early part and depending on the year that can be early October, a lot of times it's late October, just depending on when teams really show their cards and as you said, one of the huge storylines of this year is the number of new faces in new places and the complete upheaval of the league's power dynamic and and I mean, even the teams that are more stable, like the Bucks, you know, the Bucks lost a starter in Malcolm Brogdon, and the Nuggets. It seems to me like there is at least an open competition for their starting three spot, and they have a lot of interesting questions as well with Jeremy Grant coming in and everything. Oh, yeah. So even the teams that have continuity, other than and the Magic have Markel Fultz. Like even the teams that have continuity still have really interesting questions that need to be resolved.
1: Exactly, and you've identified, I think, possibly three of the top four teams in terms of projected returning minutes, uh, based on the the minutes projections that I use in compiling the RPM projections. The other team there being the Toronto Raptors, who it's weird to think of them as a team that has high continuity because they lost their star player and two starters. But the guys who are going to play in place of them are generally players who were on the roster last season. So yeah, I mean, and, and the other aspect of it is we're also kind of figuring out how they match up against different opposition. So You know how Denver deals with the Clippers, with the Lakers, the teams that now suddenly are their competition in the Western Conference in addition to, you know, some teams that are holdovers in that group. That is a layer that's part of this as well.
2: The single best example of that layer for me is Milwaukee, Philadelphia, because the Sixers, I, I don't know how to feel about them offensively, but they're going to be absolutely nasty defensively. And I think as of knowing what we know right now, I think they are particularly well suited with the number of guys they have and just the overall kind of scheme fit type stuff. I think they're really well situated to defending the Bucks well. And considering Milwaukee is, I would say, the the meaningful favorite if they stay healthy, to have the best record, at least in the East, probably in the NBA, but at least to be in the mix for the Eastern Conference Finals, you can start to think about a potential series between those two teams earlier, even if a single game or a single moment is not going to be definitive.
1: So one of the things our ESPN analytics group does in their BPI projections is calculate the chances of two teams playing each other in the postseason. And according to their estimates, Milwaukee and Philadelphia is the single most likely playoff series this year by a pretty comfortable margin happening about 40 percent of simulations. And that even maybe feels a, a touch low if if you account for, you know, kind of subjectively how how much those two teams seem to stand out from the west, rest of the Eastern Conference. I mean, I. If you gave me even odds that we see Milwaukee and Philadelphia at some point in the playoffs, I I might say yes on that one. Um, so yeah, that's going to be... A, and then all the mat- different matchups in the Western Conference because of the fact that it's it's quite the opposite in the West even though uh, there there is one matchup that is Clippers-Jazz that is the most likely matchup in the West at about 33%. There's so many possible conference finals matchups that you got to watch pretty much all the top at least six teams, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that can go there. And also, those teams at the top of the West have such disparate strengths and weaknesses that each matchup is really different. It's not like watching Clippers-Jazz is going to teach you a ton about how Clippers-Lakers is going to suss out, so you kind of need to see each of those separately.
1: Inevitably, my favorite era in the history of the NBA is the mid-1990s when the Sonics were a power in the Western Conference, and you know there was an interesting group of teams that were all battling in the West, none of them other than Houston during the years that uh, Michael Jordan was retired and coming back from retirement were able to break through and win a championship, but you had that Houston team, you had the Sonics that made the finals in 96, you had Phoenix made it in 93, uh, in addition to to other teams that were in there like San Antonio and then of course eventually Utah who got back to the, got to the finals a little bit later than those other teams and there was a, a really interesting relationship between the Sonics the Rockets And the Suns in that era where the Sonics traps were extremely effective against Houston. They were able to take away Houston shooters without just having Elijah Olajuwon run wild. So they they won playoff series head-to-head in 93 and 96, dominated the regular season series in that span until the, the Rockets traded for Barkley from the Suns. But Barkley was a different animal entirely for the for the Sonics defense to deal with. So Phoenix generally had the upper hand on the Sonics. They won their the conference finals. Those teams teams played in ninety-three in seven games and and generally controlled the season series. And then Houston always got the better of Phoenix, beat them famously, you know, upset them without the benefit of home court advantage in ninety-five. And then I think they may have had home court in ninety-four, but you know, another series that People gave Phoenix a good chance of winning. Uh, Houston, I believe, had to come back in that series. And so it was this fascinating thing where who came out of the Western Conference was determined over that four-year span in large part by which of those four teams happened to play each other.
2: That's absolutely fascinating. And and I think you're right to think about how matchup-specific elements could be in play here. And that ties in with another one of my kind of big picture storylines. This is something I brought up to Nate in actually our Patreon mailbag. Somebody asked us about storylines that I didn't think were getting enough attention. And one of them for me, you and I have talked at length, including on this podcast about the importance of home court in the playoffs. But my read that it is entirely possible due to continuity and just the structure of them as teams, that the Rockets nuggets and and jazz could be in some order the top three teams in the Western Conference standings at the end of the regular season. However, it is also possible that none of those three teams are even among my top two best teams at that point in the playoffs because the Clippers and Lakers are incorporating new pieces. They have heavier load management burdens and all of those other considerations.
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting that in last year's playoffs it didn't get much attention that I think it was – 13 out of 15 series were won by the team with home court advantage. Portland won the game seven in Denver. That was one of them. And then, uh, well Toronto beating Milwaukee in the conference final, Eastern Conference Finals would have been the other one. So it was actually a year that was like very favorable in terms of the regular season and the importance of getting home court, even though you know people don't think of it with all the load management that went on, particularly with the Raptors and Kawhi Leonard. I mean, you know, they still got the second seed, still had home court advantage in the NBA finals despite that. Uh, I, I think this year could be more of the swing back towards what we've seen in years past where home court isn't as important. I, I think to go to your point that that started this, though, to me the interesting question is whether the Jazz belong in that group because even though they're not a team that has the dominant superstar combination like we think of with the Clippers and Lakers, and even though they don't have the obvious injury concern going into the season, I still think they're probably going to, more likely to fall into that group of teams that are better in the playoffs than the regular season because of the fact that they don't have particularly strong depth. And what's interesting about that is that that's not how, you know, the the Vegas line seemed to be uh, tracking them is, if if I'm recalling this correctly, I think they have the highest over-under line for any team in the Western Conference.
2: Yeah, and it could be, that the Jazz are kind of getting the benefit of the doubt in terms of their regular season prowess, despite having a fundamental transformation. Depth is a really important part of that. And then the other part is their defensive identity. The Jazz have been one of the league's best defenses, and they still have two-time defending defensive player, the year Rudy Gobert, on the interior. But shifting away from Derek Favors being both the starting power forward and backup center, moving to Ed Davis... And also, just the kind of the ancillary effects. I think Rubio to Conley is going to be a downgrade, and just having more offensively. Ooh, ooh.
1: Mike Conley is offended by that.
2: Yeah, he can be. He can be offended by it. I just want to see him defend better. But um... I
1: I don't know if it is his uh, output was quite at that level. You know, the last couple seasons without a ton to play for. But I still think when you get him in a playoff setting, I I think he's going to be. You know, I mean, his size is a little more of an issue than it is with Rubio, but. That's a guy that's a very good defender. For it's a long also true of
2: time. that Rubio, his best days as a defender are long past. And that's not because he's old or anything. He's younger than Mike Connolly is. But he just did, hasn't looked as good the last couple of years. So I think that that is, that is worth noting. But point that point notwithstanding, I, I think that the Jazz identity, partially also because of the depth issue, whether they are a top five top 10 defense and you know like how, how that continues is going to be a really important part of the regular season success especially if they are improved on offense because then you, those two things maybe it creates a virtuous feedback loop and they're they're getting better offensive possessions so then they have an easier time defensively they don't defend they get they always get back in transition i guess anyway so yeah i'm really interested in how all that works out but as you said the the bigger reason why the depth matters is not so much like the defense on a night-to-night basis, it's the ability to withstand injuries or ineffectiveness from players in the rotation.
1: Yeah, especially when you've got Conley who hasn't played more than 70 games in five years now and you know missed nearly the entire 17-18 season, 26 games in 15-16. I think he's... You know, the clear injury risk for the the Jazz. So I did get a chance to look this up is as we were talking and they are not they do not don't have the highest over underlying at Caesar Sportsbook. They're at fifty three and a half and both the Clippers and the Rockets are at fifty four. But they're ahead of Denver at fifty two. And I would flip flop those two teams. I think Denver is the stronger regular season team, even if I do think that Utah can maybe be the better it can quite possibly be the better of those two teams in the playoffs.
2: The other elephant in the room in terms of I brought up those three teams of the the Nuggets, the Jazz, and the Rockets, Houston. Russell Westbrook, I mean, the mm-hmm. the, the easy book there is he'll be better in the regular season in the playoffs. I firmly believe that just because the fact of the matter in the modern NBA is that opponents do a lot more opposition-specific tactics in, in the playoffs because you're facing the same team over and over again. You have the incentives. You're not flying to another city the next day. And also because I, I, I'm interested with this Rockets team, and, and we still don't know how exactly they're going to fill out their entire roster. How many different really iterations or concepts of their lineup they have? So, depending on, I don't think Isaiah Hartenstein is going to be a huge part of a huge part of Mike D'Antoni's rotation. That they also they just have a ton of centers. They have PJ Tucker, and it's not like the Rockets. And in this point, you know, I was very critical of Ariza and, and Bob Mute being gone last year, and that maybe those ended up being a little less catastrophic than some thought, depending on how you see the Warriors series turning out in that hypothetical, or even them having home court. But this team, just to me, at this stage, and maybe it'll change over the course of the season. I don't feel like they have as many wrinkles as some of the other Rockets teams, and that might be hard for D'Antoni if the early stuff doesn't work as well.
1: I think the early stuff is probably going to work, though. I mean, you know, Russell Westbrook's energy he's going to bring on a night-to-night basis in the regular season that's going to be, I think, hugely valuable for them, uh, You know, give them – a way to create easy buckets and not have to rely so much on James Harden scoring in the half court. So, you know, if you have that combination if you still have James Harden scoring, you know, to go to late and late clock situations, but you don't necessarily have to rely as heavily on it. I think that's going to be a strong combination for them. They they do have I I think you know, some intriguing depth pieces. I was, I was redoing their uh, minutes projections the other day, because when I had previously done them, Thabo Cephalosha hadn't been signed yet. And, you know, I think he can give them some solid minutes as a three, four. Uh, but you also don't want to take too many minutes away from someone like Daniel house, who is kind of the, the term guy there on the wing for them or in that three, four spot. So, you know, they, they, they have the weirdness of, are they going to keep 15 guys with their luxury tax situation? And with the, the, bonus situation with Nene, are they going to be able to play him at all, or is it just too risky that, you know, you don't want to go over that 10 games and end up guaranteeing him an extra $2.4 million?
2: Yeah, is Nene basically on a, like, kind of the version of a two-way contract where you just get him <laughs> in enough games to trigger it? <laughs> But if Tyson Chandler has to miss one for whatever reason, maybe you put him out there. Yeah,
1: I guess that's a good way to think of it. He's just a Chandler insurance policy.
2: Yeah, that that's kind of the – or at least in the early part of the season, and then you cut him, which is unfortunate well, for N- for Nene that that's the way it worked out. But yeah,
1: well, presumably trade him to someone else. Who, oh yeah, that could work too. Yeah, I think he, I think they want to clear that that. Clear that salary off his – yeah, and then he could play or or maybe that team, if he goes to a, a non-contender, just waves him. I have to assume that's part of why he was willing to agree to this contract. I don't feel like we've had a lot of discussion of that in the whole Nene contract. Uh, well, I, I,
2: yeah, I understood it more in the earlier iterations where it was like, oh, you could be a big trade exception or something else like that. Like maybe there's an outside chance this crazy thing happens, but kind of as that – the NBA popped that balloon, it did become less palatable.
1: Well, it's also, you know, some of the speculation about why he opted out of his contract in the first place is because he didn't want to be included in a trade. So then you sign a contract that's designed to trade you. I I have to assume that the thinking was, you know, a team that would make a trade like that is probably going to waive him. So I pick up, I pocket the full minimum salary that I was going to get this year anyway. And then I have the chance to pick my team in February. That was the logic that I got out of it from his standpoint.
2: Right. And you also, I mean, you talked about the idea of what he was choosing, but also remember that he opted out of more money than he picked up anyway. Yep. So that's, and as you said, the risk of trade and everything else, but yeah, that's, that's worth keeping an eye on. Still plenty more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from betonline.ag. It is a fun, active time in sports. Preseason basketball is going on, but... Much bigger action in football and baseball. I'm enjoying being a part of the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge. Still doing very well. They're tabulating the scores right now, so I don't know exactly how well. I'm either tied for first or maybe in second. But thrilled with that. And it's a great time to check out betonline.ag, whatever you're into. I mean, NFL Week 6, Niners-Rams, close to my heart, Eagles-Vikings... Texans-Chiefs will be really interesting, too. And then in college, Oklahoma-Texas, always a great one. Texas A&M at Alabama, Ford LSU, lot going on. And then, of course, in baseball, transitioning from the first round to the second round over the next few days, which is always really exciting, should be some fun matchups. If you want to get on the action yourself, go to betonline.ag and use the Podcast One promo code for a 50% up bonus. Also, of course, tells them that you came from us, which is much appreciated. And whatever you're into, if it's a game that you're already going to watch that you want to make more interesting, or you think you know something, you think you know what's coming up, and also they have great live in-game options as well, if you're into that. So whatever you want to try out, betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. There's a lot more to get to in the West, but a question that has been vexing me for the better part of three weeks now is... Who's the third best team in the East?
1: So my first instinct is that it's going to be the Boston Celtics, that people are underrating them a touch because of what happened last season. You know, their their point differential was much better than their record. That's a thing, you know, that is, I think that, That was a big factor in why the season was so unhappy in Boston above and beyond the expectations that were generated by that improbable run to the conference finals the year before that with Kyrie on the sidelines and and Gordon Hayward on the sidelines. Obviously, they're not going to be the same team defensively with Ennis Cantor and Robert Williams and Daniel Tice and maybe Vincent Poirier at center as they were with Al Horford there and Aaron Baines. Uh, But offensively, they look like I think they're going to be pretty potent, particularly if Gordon Hayward is kind of what we saw from him late in the regular season. They're going to present a lot of difficult matchups for teams with big fours if they play that, you know, Tatum and Jalen Brown together in the front quarter, Tatum and Hayward, depending on, you know, how they decide to go and and who you want to call the two or the three if, you know, Brown and Hayward and Tatum are all out there together and then. Kemba Walker surrounded by quality talent and shooting, that's just a thing we've never really seen in the NBA before. So I, I'm excited to see how that looks. I think they're my first choice for that third spot.
2: I think so too. The Raptors also somehow might be getting short shrift there just because they have so much defensive talent. And I think that they've done a really nice job of kind of finding other things that can work. They'll need more from Lowry and Van Vliet offensively, but... Coaching staff did a fantastic job last year, both in terms of the load management where they deserve a lot of praise, but also tactically. I thought that they did some really nice work getting everybody engaged and happy. And while this is a meaningfully different team, you know, not only are they missing Kawhi and Danny Green, but they don't have DeMar DeRozan, who they had before Kawhi and Danny Green. And, and he, despite my misgivings, is still a, a great place to kind of sop up a large amount of offensive possessions to a level of success that you either are, are or are not satisfied with. But anyway, that... I think gives them a, a, a kind of an edge to a certain extent. And then what, what I was thinking about in terms of this question and why I settled on the Celtics as well is because there are a lot of pretty good teams in the East, a lot of teams that I like in a specific capacity, the Heat, the Magic, this year's Nets, the Pacers most notably among that. But I don't see... From, and maybe i 'm just wrong and and that 's an interesting discussion point if you disagree with me i don 't see any of those teams as having a particularly high ceiling that oh all of a sudden there 's like a, a combined top ten offense and top ten defense in in one of those teams, and they 're the next you know they 're the next bucks or whatever, and they can go on a run, win fifty to fifty five games and they 're just in that mix i don 't really see that from Anybody other than maybe the Celtics, and even them, because of my deep issues with their defense, it still seems distant for them, too.
0: Well, I
1: don't know about the criteria of a top 10 offense and defense, but I would say that, you know, if you wanted me to pick the team out of that group with the highest upside, I would probably say Orlando just because of the ha- fact that they have such high variance players on their bench, and then, you know, maybe even in Jonathan Isaac in particular in their starting lineup. So, you know, if Markel faults everything goes perfectly according to plan, and he is close to the number one prospect of a couple of years ago, that gives them a level to go up offensively from where they were last season, and they would, they don't have to get into the top ten to be the third best team in these. If they just got to average offensively, given how good they're likely to be defensively, I think that would be good enough. And then Mobamba would be the other guy, young player off the bench, who provides them that same level of uh, variance. You know, a strong start for him in the preseason so far, even they were so much better last year after they replaced him and uh, the the various backup point guards they had cycling through Isaiah Briscoe and Jerry and Grant with Michael Carter Williams and Kemp Birch.
2: Right, I think that's a really good point. And also, while you know, we might, it might not be quite as rosy as the end of last season, Orlando had a really dominant defense last year. And even if it takes a few steps back, they're still really really good there. And so. That can be a calling card, and maybe then if the offense is a little bit better or even if it's unsustainably better for, for enough of a period of time they can pick up some wins, that would be a big difference. And part of what – and you, you were getting at this at the end of your answer – that made Orlando's when, – when you look at a team – Colin Sexton's another example of this to an extent. When you look at a team that has a fundamental, fundamentally different kind of segments of the season – I like to look at whether something materially changed, whether there's, and then whether that changes returning or not. And so, last year for the Magic, I think the biggest thing that happened was they took those worst players out of the rotation, and once they took those players out, things got a lot better. You know, bringing in Briscoe, Michael Carter Williams once Briscoe got hurt, and then fixing the center rotation, which incidentally they're hoping is now fixed with the guy who they excised to fix it last time. Though they also still have Ken Birch. And even though maybe I mean, considering a lot of those players are still there, some of that downside risk is is still present for the Magic, I feel more confident that they're going to be closer in terms of the bench issue to second-half Magic than first-half Magic.
1: I mean – To some extent, you know, if those guys don't play well, you can just pull the plug more easily because now we've seen that you can be successful without him. So even if, you know, right now Steve Clifford is saying that Mo Bamba has the backup center job and, you know, thus far, again, he's he's seeming to justify that with his play. They re signed Ken Birch for a reason. They know they've got him sitting there and, and ready to go if need be. So, you know, I think there's there's the opportunity for them to cut bait and pivot more quickly than they did last season when it really took that injury for Bomba for it to happen. And, you know, point guard, it, it took a while, even though there wasn't necessarily the specific impetus as there was at center. But this, I think, provides an interesting pivot point. Can we talk about the Phoenix Suns for a minute?
2: I feel like they had to come up at some point during this. And I mean, are, are you getting used, are you getting into the idea of NBA comp- competence as being an important thing?
1: That that would be the through line here between the second half Orlando Magic and and this year's Phoenix Suns. You mean, to who
2: you mean now, the 35-win thir- Phoenix Suns?
1: To, I'm now being used as an adjective to describe the Phoenix Suns, which I did not see coming. uh yeah, I mean, this is a team that played a lot of really, really bad players last season. And those players are generally off the roster or other than, you know, maybe in the case of Ellie Acobo, uh, relegated to the fringes of the rotation or entirely out of it. So, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how much improvement they're capable of just from going, you know, everyone thinks of the improvement as going from like average to good, but you maybe can improve just as much from going really bad to average.
2: It's a fascinating idea. And as somebody who has harped on the importance of playing NBA players, I, I do agree with it. And it gets also gets to a threshold question that I've been trying to process in the Western Conference, which is the lack of truly bad teams. Yep. And that can sort itself out a few different ways. One is somebody is just way worse than we think they are. And so they stop up some of those losses. Another is that those losses get distributed among the Western Conference teams, So instead of having... A bunch like a bunch of teams in the high 40s, maybe they're more in the mid 40s, and then you have some teams that are a little bit higher on the bottom end, and or maybe somebody gets injured, and then that, that swings it all that. And so with with the Suns, I get into this weird thing where I think I think they're a lot better than they were. That's not really that controversial an opinion, and the passage of time generally helps them. They are a young team, especially their best players, but I wonder if. It's this weird circumstance where they are significantly better, but the signif- but the significantly better doesn't mean as much. So, for example, last year the Suns not only did they win, they went nineteen and sixty three, but they had the point differential of a nineteen win team as well. So you could be a lot better than that. Like let's say they go from a negative nine point five point differential to a negative. Three or so—that's huge, and they're in the mid—they're in the low thirties. Like that—that's a pretty impressive thing. Is that kind of the idea here, from from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I think that's much more likely than them like actually challenging for a playoff spot this year. But for a franchise that just has had so little reason to. You know, feel good about the team success. I mean, there's been some individual moments with Devin Booker's brilliance, and, you know, DeAndre Ayton showed a lot of promise uh, along with some areas uh, for improvement as a rookie. But, you know, in terms of team success, it's been a long period of time since we've had any reason to hope for this team. Uh, You know, five seasons now since they won more than 25 games. So I I think that even just getting to 30, I don't know if it's going to be a cause for celebration in Phoenix, but it's it's at least a sense that they're heading in the right direction. And the other aspect of it is, you know, if they're playing at least semi-meaningful games at midseason, that the season isn't effectively over by, you know, December 1st or what it, you know, it was a little after that they traded Trevor Reza, But, you know, not not dramatically. So uh, what does that mean for our ability to evaluate Booker and DeAndre Ayton and, you know, understand whether they can contribute to a winning team or whether they are kind of just empty stats guys?
2: That'll be a huge storyline, and another one that the Suns could maybe not—we'll have to see—intersect with is the possibility, kind of in both conferences, that the eight seed is is somewhat attainable. And relative to that conference's success, I don't think that line is necessarily going to be the same in the East and the West. But you know, if it ends up being more in the low to mid forties in the West than before, and maybe it's in the low forties, even high thirties, maybe in the East. I haven't peeped it out all the way yet. That Of course, that has huge ramifications for the teams that are in the mix, and and if you're closer and all that. And the All-Star break being where it is, and now the trade deadline being before the All-Star break, teams are going to have less information when they make those decisions. So maybe what ends up happening is, especially in a year where there's just not as much overall flexibility because all these players just sign, maybe... Teams just stand pat a little bit more because they just they, they think they're in it enough and it's the, the asking prices for some of the crazy ones might just be too high or teams just aren't that interested in dumping salary, whatever whatever that is. And so teams just don't sell as hard, maybe even if there isn't as much buying interest.
1: Well, I think to go back kind of your previous comment, I think what's going to be interesting is, is there a team that goes into the year expecting to be in the playoff mix, maybe even expecting to be in the playoffs and gets off to a really slow start? And because of the fact that there aren't very many bad teams in the conference, just gets buried so far that they feel like they can't get back. And that's the team that unexpectedly ends up a seller. The example I'm thinking of, who weirdly, you know, they ended up finishing 42 and 40, though they didn't make the playoffs and were a seller, was the Clippers of 17-18, the year after Chris Paul departed, who got off to that 5-11 and 11 start. Uh, They had some injuries. Patrick Beverly was lost for the season. I think there was a Blake Griffin injury in there at some point. And, you know, then they end end up trading Blake at midseason, even though that really wasn't necessarily because of their record. They had gotten back above 500 by that point. But, you know, who could be the equivalent of that that team this year that gets off to a slow start and just decides that they have to pivot because of the fact that there aren't that many bad teams and it's going to be difficult to get back into the race
2: you also have the the challenge with some of those situations of a team that you know you, a front office that let's say has has the reason to be either more realist realistic or pessimistic cuz i mean especially for the the squads that have a little bit older rosters you know, like i can't imagine the lakers making that transition even if it were even worth the recall right i mean they have lebron james who's turning 35 this year i also don't think it's going to happen to the lakers i think they're far better than that but the, those sorts of circumstances are really compelling and the, the kind of the sellers that come out of nowhere can be as interesting as the buyers that come out of nowhere And, it, it, and depending on the market and, and what else comes to bear.
1: Okay, one other thing I think we should discuss related to this is I, I think your point is well taken about the attainability of the 8th seed and the number of teams that are going to be in contention for the playoffs. And I think the other flip side of that, what that means is – I don't think very many teams should be considered locks to make the playoffs in the Western conference East, probably more. So I don't see as much of a depth of that, you know, what a whatever tier it is, but second tier playoff contenders. But in the West, I think, you know, even minor injuries could hurt a lot of teams. I, I just don't know that you should be considering more than like three team, two or three teams locks going into the season.
2: I would agree. And I think the Lakers last year are a good cautionary tale, Though they're, I'm not saying it's necessarily them, but they're considering the Lakers are better constructed, but of how, you know, like a, a, things can, things can get out of hand. And I mean, they had injuries and their linchpin went down and that changes everything, but I, I it, it is well taken. And even though there are a lot of teams in the West that have had a consistent level of success, I mean, you could go as extreme as the Warriors, though obviously they're not the same team anymore, or even something like Portland where, There are people who are more and less positive on the Blazers, but I would guess that around the league, people probably think they have a pretty high floor because of Terry Stott's defensive system and the star power and resilience of Damon CJ. But you're right that it could go in a lot of different directions. And just because also, the idea of the depth of quality, the other part that that means is you're not going to necessarily get saved by the schedule as often. So if Steph Curry misses... Two weeks, not a serious injury, but enough time to miss two weeks. beyond the fact that the words just aren't going to be super good in those minutes in those, in those minutes they if you run into the tenth best team in the West during that time, your chances of winning are significantly lower than they were at some other points in the past.
1: Yeah, the Warriors are really the team I think of when I make that comment about the number of locks because you do see some people who consider them a lock to make the playoffs, and you know they'll probably caveat that with like barring a serious injury to someone like Steph or Draymond. I think even you know just a I I, I don't know how we would characterize it in terms of games missed, but a less than serious injury could be enough to throw them out of the mix. I mean, how many games would Steph Curry have to play? Would I have to tell you that Steph Curry is going to play for you? to say the warriors are certain to make the playoffs.
2: 75?
1: Well, that's a high number.
2: It is a high number.
1: <sighs> I mean, I was probably going to go like 70, so that's, I. mean, if
2: they so they're here's just... the way I was thinking. Nate and I talked about this a little bit in the over under podcast we did. In, other than against like the really bottom of the bottom of the league, the warriors are going to be either underdogs or close to it in most of the games Steph Curry doesn't play. Like they just don't have enough especially like let's say before Clay gets back because they don't have a replacement for Curry and they don't really have the other depth on the roster to kind of scramble those games offensively or defensively. So if they're, let's say it's 12 games, let's say he mis- play 70 and he, he misses 12 games and they're meaningful underdogs in all those. And let's say they're more on the fringe of the playoffs than others would say. Well then, I mean, if they're underdogs in those 12 games, then, or most of those 12 games, then it starts getting downhill pretty fast.
1: Yeah, the math starts getting a lot more difficult. So you know, I think that's important. Now, and you, and you, you also,
2: so you also use the word certain. And since I'm a lawyer, you know how I yeah. am about
1: that. Oh yeah, I mean, well, you know, people throw out their words too, too uh, carelessly a lot of the time when we're discussing the NBA and you know, just about anything we're we're discussing. Uh, another team that you mentioned there that is fascinating to me is Portland because there is such a dramatic chasm between the way that the Blazers are being talked about in Portland and the way that they're being talked about, you know, nationally at least in terms of you know, particularly the kind of analytical circles that we tend to run in. So, you know, with with the Blazers, the, the big story that I, I wrote about at Media Day, which I covered for ESPN, was Damian Lillard says, hey, our focus is on winning a championship. That's our goal this year. We think we can be better than last year. And we got to the conference finals and you contrast that with. These statistical projections for the Blazers, which a variety of methods, the mine that, you know, mine that I do using ESPN's plus, real plus minus included among them, have them as basically a 500 team or maybe even slightly worse than 500 and not a certainty to even make the playoffs. So, you know, there's definitely look, internal expectations are always going to be higher, almost always going to be higher than what the outside and particularly the statistical projection is going to be because of the fact that, well, I think there's a few interesting reasons for that. One of it that when we th- when we think in our head about a team's season, we think about the median season for them. But because of the way that injuries are distributed, the median season is closer to the best possible season for that team than it is the worst possible season. There's a lot more downside risk than there is upside risk. And that's part of, I think, why people always tend to think that statistical projections are not always but often tend to think that statistical projections are underrating their team above and beyond just you know kind of their their own bias and you know the way that they're looking at things most favorably but for that gap to be as large in terms of you know kind of stakes and tiers as championship contender to not certain to make the playoffs i don't remember a lot of situations like that
2: no, I don't either. And also, the the greater context of Lillard and McCollum both signing long-term contracts and the expectations that they probably have for where this is going are are fascinating. And especially, something that I think about sometimes is, can a team rationalize away on, on more negative than expected? You talked about the difference between internal and external expectations. And I think it's something different if everything goes haywire or a key player gets hurt and things just things just go wrong versus we're just not as good as we thought we were and that can sometimes be more devastating i'm not saying in the portland specific case that that is is going to happen or anything like that i actually think there's a chance with the model that the models are underappreciating it just because terry stotts is the but their defense but i also acknowledge okay. that i also acknowledge that their defense has not been this rock solid you know like element that has withstood every single transition i mean going through it using cleaning the glasses garbage time filter which i think is very useful when we're talking specifically about defensive rating it's not like the blazers have been you know sterling every single year of the terry stott's tenure but i also think that Whiteside in particular is a very good fit for it so maybe they withstand that and also this idea you and i i think probably talked about it at some point last year Neil O'Shea continues to reinvent their bench, and I'm guessing there's some skepticism there because typically, you know, young players with like Simons don't generally work out in your t- in, in their first real shot at the big time. And I'm not saying he will necessarily, but they do have a track record at this point of cycling through guys and the replacements doing reasonably well.
1: Yeah. I mean it it is a little it would be a little ahead of schedule for Simons because it seems like it's usually year three that those guys break through Zach Collins did play an important role in last year's playoffs, but you know, you look back to March after they had signed Ennis Cantor is a buyout guy. They did that before Yusuf Nurkic went down. They didn't know that was going to happen. And, Collins was on the fringes of the rotation at that point. There was a couple of games, I think where he got a DNP CD before that Nurkic injury. And then all of a sudden he was forced into this much more important role than expected and inhaled it well, which is part of the reason why he's moving into the starting uh, power forward job. But traditionally, you know, maybe that's, maybe it's unfair because it's often been a lot of second round picks, but, you know, you look at Alan Crabb, Will Barton, uh, C.J. McCollum, who was a lottery pick but lost much of that first year due to injury. It's really been year three that they've made a, a real impact for the Blazers.
2: I hadn't realized how extreme the defensive swings for the Blazers have been. So this is the yeah. last five years, starting, starting from the most recent. 16th last year, 7th, 25th, 20th, and 10th.
1: And, and then the interesting thing is like last year, even though the, the defense got so much worse than it was the year before, they were still a better team because of the fact that the offense was right. you know, the best we've seen and, since and the 13-14 team. You, yeah, you wouldn't think it's going to lose a ton because I, I think their losses – weirdly again for a team that was much better offensively than defensively, their losses were probably much more at the defensive end with Amino and Harkless, and then also just with Nurkic not being able to play. He's effectively a loss for the first, you know, probably at least four months of the season. And, I mean, Hassan Whiteside is... You know, if you want to talk about X factors for the entire season as a whole, Hassan Whiteside is probably one of the biggest ones in the league with this important role replacing Nurkic and, you know, just seeing what he can do in a new setting in a contract year. Is he the guy that when it was so tantalizing with the huge box score stats he was putting up early in his tenure in Miami, or the guy who by the end had really worn out his welcome?
2: Huge question. I want to ask you about some of the teams that are either confusing or tantalizing me. You talked about Whiteside, and, and he's he has certainly been tantalizing and confusing to me over the years. But I think the place for me to start is with Dallas. The Mavericks have a, so many different things that I really like. They have Even though the offseason did not go the way I hoped or expected, they still have a lot of capable players. I think they have a lot of guys that can fit in nicely with each other. You know, the Doncic-Porzingis stuff should be pretty fun. But it is something fundamentally different to say, kind of like what we did with the Suns, that they can be a lot better, but are they, like, playoff team better and health and with Porzingis most notably being a part of that. What is your feel for them right now?
1: I think they certainly can. So... Dallas was the first team that came to mind you know when you started to go into that uh, discussion of you know teams that are fascinating i mean You know, first off, just seeing what Porzingis is so long removed from him last being on the court, what kind of step forward can Doncic take in year two? I mean, those are two huge questions, not only for what the Mavericks do this season in terms of potentially pushing for a playoff spot, but also in terms of kind of their long term upside and how much they look like uh, a rising force in the Western Conference. The other question that, you know, above and beyond the personnel is specifically fascinating to me about the Mavericks is for such a long period of time, they tended to outperform their point differential, which, you know, was often credited to Rick Carlisle's coaching and the veterans they had. That was a big factor with the the 2011 championship team. But even going beyond that season, they tended to, you know, generally outperform their point differential, and that flipped badly the last two years, where you know they had the point differential, you know, Pythagorean record of. Let's see, twenty thirty three wins in seventeen eighteen. Actually, one twenty four in eighteen nineteen. Uh, last year, they had a Pythagorean record of thirty eight and forty four. Actually, one thirty three. Uh, th- those both coming from basketballreference.com. dot com. If that flips back again in a situation where they're much more serious about trying to compete for a playoff spot than they were the last two years, you know, all of a sudden. If they're starting at a thirty-eight win place and adding to that Kristaps Porzingis and getting Luka Doncic's development in year two, and then also just kind of the incremental roster upgrades, then it's not hard to get up into the mid forties and be a very serious playoff contender.
2: Right, and. I can see a lot of that with Dallas, and it could also be a circumstance, Atlanta might end up in this boat, where you see a lot of positive signs, but due to injuries or just not being quite there yet, where they become a really trendy 2020-21 playoff team, even if they don't make it this year, that seemed, I think it'd even be, you know, look, looking better than just like squeaking in at that point, but don't make it in. That's going to be really interesting for me. Still lots more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about CBS Sports HQ, which is the brand new streaming sports news network. It is live 24-7 and costs you nothing. It is sports coverage that is always on and always free. It's great that CBS Sports HQ made the decision to focus on the sports themselves. As those of you who listen to the show know, that's where I'm focused. And that's tons of highlights, breaking news, and then also fantasy advice and if you're into gambling, they have a lot they have a lot of that information as well. And it's also just fantastic that it is completely free, not a trial membership or for, you know, a week just to see if it out for a cable package. Completely free for everybody. It doesn't even require a login. All you have to do is download the CBS Sports app on your phone, your Apple TV, Roku, Fire TV, or any other connected device to watch CBS Sports HQ. No fake debates, just sports for real sports fans at the great price of completely free. Don't even have to log in or sign up for anything. You just download the CBS Sports app and watch CBS HQ today.
0: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you.
2: will be potentially looking at next season differently than this season, even if it goes well, is Brooklyn. And Brooklyn last year, I mean, I I love Kenny Atkinson. I think he did a really good job. And they did have to withstand some just some weird stuff last year, like the horrifying injury to Karis LeVert, who played in 40 games. But they lost a lot of important players. And they gained some, but also one of their best players being on the bench for presumably all 82 games are pretty dang close to it makes it really different and I, I can't make heads or tails of it yet because I have this idea that they're going to be worse than I they're like they lost a lot and they're, they're not getting Kevin Durant also Wilson Chandler being suspended for PDs doesn't really help but I also think Kenny Atkins is a good coach and I also think betting against Kyrie Irving when he can actually play to carry an offense is a bad idea
1: yeah I mean it's interesting because you know you do think that Kyrie Irving for D'Angelo Russell that should be an upgrade as well as Russell played last season you know the reasonably could have better health. You had Spencer Dinwiddie missed an extended period of time. In addition to, you know, the delivered the injury you mentioned, it's really kind of those, those supporting role players at Davis, Jared Dudley gave them some important minutes last year. Uh, I, I don't think I'll include Rondae Hollis, Jefferson and Jared or, and, uh, and Alan Crabb necessarily in that list, but you know, they've, they've had some, some downgrades on the margins. I, Their projection being as pessimistic as it was was a little bit of a surprise to me when I started running the RPM projections, but not a total surprise given the fact that – I mean the other aspect of it is you look at teams that jumped as much as the Nets did from 17-18 when they won 28 games to last year when they won 40 – 42, I should say, uh, those teams tend to come back a little bit the following year. It's the plexiglass pr- principle that uh, Bill James talked about in baseball, which is, you know, a specific example of regression to the mean. And I, so I think even if they had just kept the same core, they probably would have had a worse projection than people expected. So that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Also, I, I would note for the record that I'm I'm a bit of a Karis Levert skeptic res- relative to the, the massive love he gets on the Internet.
2: Yeah, I'm I actually conflicted on Levert at this moment. I think I'm going to feel differently, you know, f- clarify a little bit in the in the last, or sorry, in the first like 20 games or so of the season, because I still remember before he got hurt, I, I liked him the best of Brooklyn's guards, that's at, for moments in time, and there were times when I liked him better than the Nets guards in the playoffs. However, some of that is just my intense mistrust of D'Angelo Russell, who is no longer on the Brooklyn Nets.
0: That
1: That is accurate. Now you get to watch him all the time. Uh, Hooray! I- I mean, at some point, Levert needs to prove that he can score more efficiently than he has in the two seasons where he's been in a featured role in the offense. He had, you know, 556 true shooting percentage as a rookie, pretty much league average, but that was on a 16.6% usage. The last two years moving into a larger role, 525 true shooting percentage, 22.5% usage in 17-18, and last year, 509 true shooting on 24% usage. So if he's going to be a guy who's going to get a lot of shot creation opportunities, which, you know, maybe he's not with Kyrie Irving playing, you know, taking on that role and Spencer didn't would Dinwiddie around to do it for the second unit, but then also he doesn't necessarily slide easily into a complementary role as a 33% career three-point shooter. So I I'm still not sure what what you know, his his real value is offensively.
2: It's a great point and something that hopefully we'll get more information on over the course of the season. Something else I was thinking about big picture, I was looking at the kind of the the overall breakdown on some of the projection models and just how the bottom of the league is so East heavy. And that's not a huge surprise. And my first instinct was, Oh, it can't be that, you know, four or possibly even all five of the worst teams in the league are in the East. Well Last year, in terms of point differential, <laughs> four of the bottom five teams in the in, in the league were in the Eastern Conference. So it is definitely not impossible because it just
1: happened. Look, anytime time you say it can't be possible for the Eastern Conference, they find a way. Uh, yeah, if you go by the raw projections, the bottom five teams in the the RPM projections are all in the East. When you factor in schedule, I think that Washington may come out slightly ahead of Memphis at that point because of that factor. But uh, yeah, it's uh, – it's it's slim pickings at the bottom of the East. I mean, Atlanta is the one team out of the group you feel like has a chance to kind of outperform expectations, but I, I'm with you. I think they're still a year away from making serious noise.
2: Especially because it's hard to see how they make a big step defensively. They lost two of their best defenders and are just an incredibly young team. I, I think Lloyd Pierce did a really good job with them last year. I think he will do that again, but at a certain point, it's about personnel, and they don't have the right personnel for that. I'm not a, the biggest Alex Lenn believer, and even though Hunter could could definitely help, I, I, I've liked what I've seen from him preliminarily, both in the UVA film and in the other, you know, the, his small NBA action so far. But that can be a big threshold. You can be quite a good offense, and if your defense still sucks, it's hard to make the playoffs. But
1: it does make you a great league pass team.
2: Oh man! I mean, you and I both watched that Pelicans. Hawks game, which was just, it was just like cotton candy. You just, I say that as somebody who's not the biggest fan of cotton candy, but anyway, the point being that it's just, it's just a sugar rush and then it's gone and you enjoyed, you enjoyed it anyway. It was fun.
1: Yeah. I guess I'd go with, yeah, it was more pleasurable than cotton candy for me. So I'll go with like a candy bar.
2: Yeah, let's go. Yeah, we can do that. And let's talk about the other part of that candy bar, the New Orleans Pelicans, maybe the hardest team in the NBA for me to figure out. Partially because there are just so many different personnel groupings and ways that this can play out. They have a lot of good players. This is not the approach of, you know, tear it all down, got the number one pick. They even had a ton of other draft assets who looked great in Summer League like Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander Walker, one of my absolute favorites. But they have Drew Holiday, they have JJ Reddick, Derek Favors, Nicola Melli looked pretty good in their first preseason game. So, I think that this will be what I, I, I use the term a lot, but I think it'll be an evaluation year for David Griffin, Alvin Gentry, and the Pels. And that makes me so much less certain about where it's going to go because they might want to take the whole year to figure out whether Lonzo Ball's shot is figured out and if Josh Hart can actually play a rotation role instead of making quick moves early on other than maybe something... I mean, they just need to figure out what's going on with Brandon Ingram because he's the one who hits free agency the soonest.
1: Right. The the ticking clock of first his extension and then, you know, if not that, then restricted free agency next summer kind of forces that decision to some extent. I mean, we started this podcast by talking about, you know, unraveling the mysteries and kind of figuring out what's happening. And I don't think there's many teams that are more interesting from that standpoint than the Pelicans for all the reasons you listed off. Uh, you know, what Elvin Gentry decides to do first with his starting lineup, because you have four players who have historically been starters on the perimeter or, you know, you would think of as starting caliber players with. I mean, obviously, Drew Holiday is going to start. Then you've got, you know, Lonzo, J.J. Redick and Ingram. Two of those three can start. One of them's going to have to come off the bench and it'll be really interesting to see how they end up going there. It was Redick who came off the bench in that first preseason game against the Hawks. And then which direction do they go with the second unit? Uh, Alexander Walker and Hayes, as you mentioned, didn't really get into the second, until the second half of that game. Melly even was, you know, in kind of the second wave of substitutions. They had Kenrich Williams playing as a uh, as a small ball four uh, in the, the first go round with the, the reserves there. So there's a lot of options, because this is a team that, you know, if you look at just guys who are capable of playing NBA minutes, you could argue that, Everyone who's healthy on this roster is capable of being an NBA rotation. I mean, Frank Jackson maybe is the uh, the weakest argument there. But that's A, going to give Elvin Gentry a lot of options, but B, going to force some difficult choices. And they're probably going to be guys who are unhappy with their minutes at the start of the season.
2: Right. And another element that makes the Pelicans so compelling is all of these players who could be using it as a showcase, either to be in New Orleans or somewhere else. And the three Lakers are a really interesting example there, where each of them, I would say, could raise their stock significantly this year by virtue of being healthier, by being in a better fitting offense and overall scheme. But they might be showcasing themselves to be somewhere else because of the unusual construction of the roster, mostly Zion Williamson related. I, I actually think Josh Hart is the best fit of the three former Lakers that have come over, but he also has the, the weakest pedigree both in terms of draft stock and NBA success. So that will be a balancing act for more, – more for Griffin than for Gentry because Gentry's job is to put the best team on the floor with within the constraints put on him by his general manager. But I, I wonder how all that's going to play out. You know, like let's say Lonzo has a better than expected season, but they, the Pelicans are good enough that they want to keep Drew. Then you kind of have to make a decision about where you want to go.
1: I don't think so. I'm more I'm more hopeful hopeful about that pairing than you are. I mean, what about you know, what about
2: Ingram and Zion?
1: Well, that that I'm not as. I mean, just Ingram does feel somewhat out of place in this. Our buddy Nate Duncan was tweeting about that during the game on it was Tuesday. Crazy. Where crazy. He's holding the ball while everybody else it's flying around, and you know I think that's what's going to make Zion most effective. You know, obviously that's best for someone like JJ Redick. It's probably best for you know uh, Lonzo at this stage of his career as well. So. You know, they got to figure out how he fits in or whether he isn't a fit going forward. But, you know, I think anyway, to go back to the Lonzo Drew's question, you know, obviously the the old regime, including Elvin Gentry, saw him as much more of a shooting guard than a point guard. They liked him in that role. They, those two guys have tremendous defensive versatility because of their size. You can certainly play them together and have them be elite at the defensive end as a backcourt together. You probably, if you know, depending on how much improvement we see from Lonzo as a shooter, you probably do want a better shooter than Brandon Ingram. Next to those guys is a small forward, but yeah, I, I think that's uh, a perfectly solid fit. Again, if you know what we see from Lonzo, what you've seen from Lonzo with his uh, improved shot carries over.
2: I'm also excited about the possibility of another kind of through line of this season of teams just going with three guards. So maybe it's Lonzo, Drew, and JJ Redick. And yeah, there will be teams that can exploit that, but just don't use that matchup in those circumstances.
1: I mean, here's the thing is, look. Drew Hawley is going to defend the best opposing wing. I mean, I guess maybe Ingram does in certain matchups, but a lot of the time, Drew's just going to defend your best opposing wing, no matter what position they play. So, you know, does it really matter whether you have him out there with a guard or a small forward in that case? It might not be a huge deal. Uh, Portland, I think, is going to be a team that's going to definitely have this again. We saw them play some minutes in the playoffs with Seth Curry alongside Lillard McCollum. Simons probably graduates to that role if he develops as they expect. And, you know, otherwise... It's otherwise it's Kent Waysmore or Rodney Hood a lot of the time who are not exactly like big physical small forwards in their own right so that's that's another interesting group I mean then there's the uh, the teams that are small at the power forward position we talked about Brooklyn you know they're probably it's Torian Prince starting at power forward there. The Clippers, if they start Kawhi and and Paul George together at the forward spots with Landry Shaman at shooting guard, they're going to be unusually small at the four. And then you've got some teams that are just still giant there, the Blazers again with Zach Collins and Hassan Whiteside, and then notably the Lakers with AD and and, uh, whoever is at center. Yeah, uh, and then Utah. I guess we go back to the small ball four teams. They're probably going to be in that same position. Sounds like maybe Royce O'Neal effectively is the starting power forward. You know, depending what happens with uh, Joe Ingles coming off the bench.
2: Yeah, it'll be a lot to a lot to watch, and that ties in with this idea. There are kind of two other big picture things I want to talk about with you on the show. One of them is the amount of teams that have a best five that does not involve either that definitely doesn't involve two forward-sized players, but in certain cases it doesn't even involve one, is absolutely fascinating.
1: I mean, I think just, you know, you're seeing some teams experimenting in the preseason with these lineups where it's basically four guys between 6'6 and 6'8, and that's definitely the type of player the teams have been collecting for a reason. They have the most versatility, the the most... Capable of switching defensively, most interchangeable there. And it's going to be interesting to see how far teams go towards that ideal this season.
2: Well, and then the teams that do it the opposite way because they don't have any of those players. So, like you brought up Portland, Portland will probably start a natural two guard at the three and a natural center at the four. That's yep. pretty wild. The, yeah. And the Pacers will probably do the same, depending on what happens with TJ Warren.
1: Yeah. So it. It's going to make for a lot of fun, and that's like you know, like we said at the top of this, it's really what's going to make the start of this season so interesting and and you know so rich is the fact that there's all these things we need to figure out. Like we've been talking about them for you know three months now since the craziness of the first week of July, and now we get to see how it actually plays out on the court.
2: Still more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but a quick message from Podcast One thanks so much for listening to the show and we at podcast one have a small but very important favor to ask of you It only take a few minutes. And if you're one of the first people to do it, podcast one will make it worth your time even more. We need you to complete a short survey and the information you give us can help make things better for the show. And for you as a listener, just go to podcast one.com slash survey and everything will be right there for you. Again, that's podcast one.com slash survey. The first 250 people to complete the survey, will get a $10 gift card to amazon.com and two grand prize winners will be selected RAM to get a $100 gift card. It's free money, helps us out. It's really a win-win. Our shows are supported by advertisers. So filling this out will help us cater to you as a listener. So again, podcast1.com survey, answer some questions, potentially make some money along the way. Thank you so much for being a dedicated listener. I mentioned that there were two things I want to talk about. The last one is kind of a big picture thing that I've been thinking about for a little while now, which is the changing of the power dynamic among elite players. Now, at the big man spots, I think we've already we've seen the next generation coming on strong with Jokic, Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns in the second half of last year. Like The young guys are already, are already taking a foothold there. Not a huge surprise. But especially at the guard spots, mostly because the guard spots don't have Giannis, it really is the old guard. You know, Steph Curry, James Harden, even to an extent Kyrie, Dame Lillard, Kemba Walker, and Russell Westbrook. Those were the six All-NBA guards last year. There is a reasonable argument that all six of those players will be worse this year in terms of like, or at least that they'll be closer to post prime or than pre prime. That maybe that's the idea. Kyrie's the, the hard one there, but his physical path and everything is unusual. And my thought is, I don't know who it is, but I feel like this is the year that. Maybe not somebody steps in and gets an all NBA spot or anything like that, but that we start to see who those players could be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Donovan Mitchell is an obvious contender for that if he takes a step forward in Utah with, you know, a team that seems kind of better suited to give him an opportunity to thrive with all that floor space out there this year. I mean, Booker, as we mentioned, potentially making that transition from, you know, someone who's put up really big points per game and even in last year assists per game stats, but hasn't really been as efficient. And you know hasn't necessarily shown he can do the other things on on defense in particular that lead to winning. Uh, I I did, does Luka Doncic fit into that group?
2: Yeah, I would say so. I, I think Luka does. I think De'Aaron Fox does as a, yep. if, if he takes it takes a real step forward. And it's also worth noting that it often takes young guards time. I mean, my, even though Mike Conley hasn't made an All Star team yet, somehow. There he, he I remember how maligned he was when he even when he got that extension, which was between his third and fourth years, and then he's become a really good pro. And it, it can it can really take some time with players who have the ball in their hands. Trey Young is another possibility, of course. So I, I'm excited to see where we, that goes.
1: We, would you say that's a reason for you to be patient with D'Angelo Russell?
2: Yes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's very hesitant. It uh, is very
2: hesitant because Russell. I, I think that. There is, and I've had trouble articulating it, it wouldn't surprise me if D'Angelo Russell becomes my muse for explaining this topic because now that I'm going to see him a lot more, the idea of how are you succeeding and what are the building blocks and and what what are you doing right, what are you doing wrong? And so for D'Angelo Russell, in Brooklyn most notably, but also largely true in Los Angeles, he was not particularly great at creating separation other than when it was created for him by a screen that is hard to improve because you know you're gonna you're generally players aren't going to get that much faster they they can get a shiftier they can get a better handle all those sorts of things and he is a wonderful passer that you can obviously build on we've seen tons of guys do that in the past and we will continue to see it in the future but I want, but I wonder about how that is as a foundation. You know, is that maybe not? He's obviously a much better shooter than somebody like Michael Carter Williams, but is the is the idea of what D'Angelo Russell did just harder to build on than even a, a lower a lower floor that another player had? But they maybe they had better tools.
1: Yeah, I. I tend to lean towards the perspective that the overall improvement is more more important than the uh, component improvement, let's say, That's and fair. so therefore it's not as important You know how you're succeeding as just the fact that you're successful at a young age, because you know, I think the things that, that can improve for D'Angelo Russell, his decision-making, which certainly has since he's come into the league, your shot selection being a part of that, and then just as he continues to hone his off-the-dribble shooting, which is really, I think, the place he made a big step last year. That's what helps create separation in the pick and roll and even maybe in isolation if you can develop a step back because of the fact that defenders have to honor that and you know play you so much tighter, that's what creates the opportunity. So that's why, you know, even though I don't know that Damien Lord is any more athletic than he was when he was 22 and coming out of Weaver State, he's still, I think, tougher to guard in the pick and roll because of the way that you have to respect him out to 30 or 35 feet. And you know, not saying that D'Angelo Russell is going to get to that point, but I, I think that's a pay- case for improvement for him.
2: It is, and maybe it is, and I'm not saying that Smith will be Dennis Smith will be better than D'Angelo Russell. Far from it, especially considering the the, the early signs that we've seen over the last couple of years. Yeah, but I'm. I don't know why I give players like him who are athletic and it's just like, oh, all they need to do is figure it out. I'm willing to give that more credence. Maybe that's my weak point, just like the people who say all he needs is a jump shot and th- that thinking that they can paper over that because of various players that have improved on their jump shot. Maybe, maybe it's that, that's my shortcoming is that with guards, I'm, you know, and so, to some extent that was the same mistake I made with Dante Axum. And it's, it's just that. It's an interesting question.
1: But to go back to your original question, I think the other player who probably falls into that category of let's be patient, guards develop late, is Jamal Murray, whose, yep. whose extension, max extension, has been you know, pretty soundly criticized. I I totally get that. I mean, commit, the Nuggets are committing to this money before they have to, you know, without any particular benefit to them other than the long-term relationship building. But we've seen a lot of these point guard extent, rookie extensions that have gotten hammered Uh, Conley most notably maybe to a little bit extent Kemba Walker didn't didn't draw quite as vitriolic a a reaction but those ended up proving two of the better contracts in the league because of the way that those guys developed over the course of those extensions
2: right and there is a very good argument that while Jamal Murray in the abstract you know his limitations creating he's not you know a a traditional point guard in, in that sense as long as Nicole Jokic is still on the Nuggets those issues don't matter nearly as much because you need somebody who fits with Nicole Jokic. And yes, it's true that if Jokic misses time, then they're more screwed than they would be otherwise. But Murray can, maybe he can develop those tools a little bit more. He'll have the, he'll have the capacity to do so at at least, and maybe he'll have the opportunity depending on how all these things go over the next few years. But you're right. And there have been examples over the years of, you know, centers or or they're figuring it out. I I think of Jermaine O'Neal a lot for that. But I think point guards, in particular, are, are are an abject lesson of how this can work.
1: Yeah, and I I think that is the game has changed and focused maybe more on, you know, just pure size, strength, adult, athleticism for big men in terms of what they're being asked to do, other than you know stretching the floor, which a lot of guys are now. Which everyone in three preseason is shooting threes now. It's it's quite remarkable. Uh, even even Ben Simmons, of course. But I think as that has changed, it maybe has made Big men more effective immediately and therefore not necessarily as effective down the road. That's one of the theories I'm working on, that we overrated guys like Andre Drummond and Hassan Whiteside because of the fact that we were comparing, hey, look at what they're doing at the same age as all these players, and those players kept improving and became stars, and – that maybe we can't assume the same development curve because that came in an era where different things were required of centers than are required of them now.
2: That's really interesting. So the idea that the the, the context made their the, – basically the, that an easier set of circumstances made it look like they were more successful than you could actually project moving forward. That or maybe
1: it? more ahead of the curve.
2: Sure. OK. That, know, that's probably a better way of putting it.
1: So where those guys have actually instead kind of trended, I would say, you know, I mean, Drummond has made improvements since he was a rookie, you know, but they've not trended as far upward as you would expect based on their age. So that's interesting to think about in the context of someone like Mitchell Robinson or, you know, Jared Allen, guys like that who have, uh, you know, come out of the gates pretty strong.
2: Yeah, so definitely something worth watching. We've talked about plenty, but I'll give you an open floor if you if there's anything else you feel like this is the last time you and I are going to talk on a podcast before the season starts. Anything else you want to discuss?
1: I think we mostly covered it.
2: I'll take a quick look through the through the league and see if there's anything else. Well, here's one brief one. I think there are a couple of teams that it's not necessarily that I expect them to make the playoffs, but that maybe deserve a little bit more buzz than I've been hearing. Minnesota is in that yep. camp for me. They 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 only have to figure it out a little bit defensively, and the the beastliness that Carl Anthony Towns put out there that could be a factor. The Bulls, I like. I, I think that you know they're they're not perfect, but adding depth really helps them another team coincidentally, coincidentally where tying back to Phoenix where playing yep. capable NBA players could really transform it. And they have Thaddeus Young, who can work in a variety of things, Sadaransky, who is starting a preseason game on Wednesday. We'll, we'll see how all that works out. So I, I think they're, they're, they're a potential beneficiary of it. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else other than the teams we've discussed because obviously Dallas would fit into this as well, but we, and, and maybe New Orleans, though. New Orleans is getting kind of a different flavor of buzz just because so many people are excited and interested in them, yes. independent of their own success level.
1: Yeah, I think they've been mentioned a lot as a trendy playoff pick, much more so, I would say, than the Wolves. I mean, the one thing that makes me a little hesitant with the Timberwolves is the fact that this still just feels like so much a work in progress as Gerson Rosas tries to shape this team into his own vision, which presumably is very different than Tom Thibodeau's vision. And he didn't really just get a chance to do much this offseason because of the fact that they were pretty constrained. It was, you know, the Jarrett Culver trade was their one big move, and other than that, it was bargain shopping for the likes of Noah Vaughan. Alan Lay, Shabazz Napier, Travion Graham, Jordan Bell. So I think that there's probably at least one, maybe two more big moves in store for the Timberwolves, and then we'll have a better sense of what they're going to be. But you know, some nice bargain shopping. Uh, those guys I, I forgot to mention, Jake Layman as well, who uh, you know I thought he was another one of those Blazers players who made a big jump in his third season and became a contributor.
2: Right. Yeah. The Wolves are a good example of you know small incremental changes that could have a big that could have a big impact, and just whether and a lot of it for them might end up depending on health. I mean, there was that really small sample size when Covington and Towns were on the floor together and the Wolves actually defended pretty well, but that could be so many other factors. There's so much noise in a sample size that small. So you you run through all that and yeah, it'll it'll be really fun. I hope that the dividing lines are done through quality, not injury, mostly because I don't want to see players get injured, but also because it's a more fun way to kind of learn where these lines are. And one last one for me of a team that not necessarily in this playoff buzz thing, but a team that I'm really interested in is San Antonio. Last year... They defied so much offensive orthodoxy, other than the fact that not turning the ball over really helps your offense, which is not exactly a a bold proclamation, but they... Are a different team now, you know. Bringing in Dejounte Murray, how Pop manages their guard rotation is going to be notable, and and how a small change to a starting li- like changing one player in a starting lineup could theoretically affect the entire offensive ecosystem. I'm going to end up watching that closely, and then also, Murray was an elite defender when he came out of the University of Washington. He, he, I mean, he was an elite defender, especially he, that
1: second he was, year. He was not an elite yeah, defender uh, at, after yeah, that. At, that at when he came out. Once, once he got in Pop's system, yes,
2: yes. So maybe that's an argument that this person signed Marquise Chris as well. But uh, the
1: I mean, I often wonder about what would have happened if Marquise Chris had gotten drafted by San Antonio and Dejounte Murray gotten drafted by Golden State. It is a fascinating alternate history.
2: It is, but maybe San Antonio. You know, I wonder about kind of how how the puzzle. You know, if you shake up all the the pieces in the box and then try to put it together, how it's going to work. And I I love that there is something like that there is there is an angle that whether it's for 20 games or for 82 or for 100 there's, there's something that makes all of these teams really interesting and really worth watching. And for people like us, that's incredibly important because we're going to be watching them either way.
1: Yeah, yeah, better be interesting because that's not going to change whether we're able to watch or not. Uh, the other thing I would say on San Antonio, though, that, that I think is so fascinating about them is, you know, their success last year was almost entirely driven by their bench, not by the lineups with DeRozan and Aldridge on the court together. And De- Davis Bertans was a huge part of that with his floor spacing. The Marcus Morris saga cost them uh, Bertans in a deal that really didn't yield them just about anything. And so now, you know, you've got Trey Lyles in that spot. You've got Tamari Carroll maybe sliding down to the four. Is that going to be able to be as effective as those groups with Bertans and, and Patty Mills and their shooting or?
2: Yeah, and that that is an important factor to consider. I mean, the the bench starter disparity with, with how things go moving forward. So yeah, that, that's worth watching. Well, I mean, you and I could talk forever. I, I genuinely love our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read him and often see him on ESPN. He does absolutely incredible work. You can also listen to the fabulous Pelton cast, which is great, especially if you're into Seattle-centric stuff or just Kevin Pelton being awesome. You can check that out. And follow him on Twitter if somehow you don't already, at k pelton K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Love having him on, one of my absolute favorites, and really came through in the pinch for me. I had a rescheduling, which hopefully will be a guest in the future, but, you know, it happens, and so KP stepped up, because I'm actually going to be out of town the rest of this week, so I needed somebody on very short notice, and he stepped up. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of are choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not, and if you want to be super awesome, you can leave a review both places if you don't use Apple Podcasts. Also, spreading the word, word of mouth, any way you see fit, social media, in person, it's awesome. Awesome subscribing and downloading still extremely important real gym radio comes out at a different time every week, depending on guest availability, as mentioned this week. And that means you can't anticipate it or anything like that. So subscribing is the single best way to do that. But the most important thing to do for this show or any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus cbs sports hq where you can download the cbs sports app and many of your streaming devices and the survey that's going on i talked about podcast one.com survey huge for us advertisers really love to have this information and it won't take you long and you might actually win some money of it you definitely help me out so those are the the main things you can do to, to support if you have any feedback on the show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to do it only have a couple more weeks until the season starts in earnest Actually might already have most of those guests lined up, have a little bit of flexibility if a couple other feelers that are out there get picked up, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But really excited about where things are going. And if you want to hear more of my, you know, day by day stuff, that will be on dunked on. So I try to keep Real GM Radio big picture as much as I can. And it's always subject to change if I get a specific guest or anything like that. Those of you who've listened for a while know that, but that is kind of the idea, at least as of now. My written work will continue to be at The Athletic, and Dunked On will really start in full when the regular season starts because Nate is still picking up the awesome team-by-team work that he has done. And if you want to listen to the division-by-division ones that I do for Real Jam Radio, all six of those are out now. You can just go through the archives and find them. Loved all the episodes, so many great guests, and, and insight that, that is still relevant. I designed Real GM Radio to be as long-running kind of as it can be. So hopefully you can enjoy that as well. Sometimes this, this actually can be the toughest time of year in the way for me just because now it's so close. But there's preseason basketball. I got really into a few of the games over the last few days, the Zion debut and Pell's Hawks, which was incredibly fun. Then I got really into Nuggets Blazers last night with Michael Porter Jr.'s debut. And then, of course, the Hazonia Scal front court, which is pretty fantastic. So that is that is really exciting. But, you know, the real thing will be here soon enough. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. We'll
0: in the air and you know who really deserves some extra love you that's who so why not treat your brain to a much-needed recharge with best fiends best fiends is the mobile puzzle game that lets you take a mental spa day wherever you are immerse yourself in the world of best fiends where you'll team up with a daring band of cute collectible characters to solve brain sparking puzzles that are nothing short of absolute fun With thousands of levels and tons of characters and exciting events added all the time, Best Fiends has all the me time you could ask for. So give yourself some extra love with Best Fiends, the perfect mobile game for those who seek to unwind. And if anyone deserves to kick back and relax, it's you. What are you waiting for? Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends.